Hi, I'm Mark Priestley. After a life spent in the elite environment of the Formula One pit lane learning how to win, this podcast aims to bring that elusive, high-performance culture into your daily lives. In today's episode, we're talking about the need for a flexible approach to life, to business, even to Formula One, because the world around us is changing at an increasingly fast pace, and if we're not able to adapt and keep up, we quickly risk falling to the back of the grid. Welcome to Pit Lane Life Lessons. Talk about how Formula One teams are so successful. Tiny things, but you only find those tiny things when you look for them. Of course, there's only one winner in every Grand Prix, so for everybody else, you haven't won, so it could be deemed that's, that's a failure. Hello everybody, welcome back to Pit Lane Life Lessons. You know, I love doing these podcasts. They are literally the favourite thing that I produce, the favourite piece of content for me, the favourite thing that I do right now. And the reason I love it so much is because I'm hearing from so many of you that it's genuinely helping you on a daily basis. It's helping you at work, it's helping you at home, it's helping you to achieve some of your goals in life. And that is the most incredible feeling. So. Thank you so much for those people that have let me know that that is the effect that it's having on you. It really means the world to me. And if you have sent me a message, I hope that I've responded to you. I'm responding and reading every single one of your messages. Uh, If you've left me a review or a rating in the Apple uh, iTunes podcast store, makes the world a difference to me, but also to the way the podcast is received and how it jumps up the order. So please, if you can spare a moment, Uh, to do that, that would be great. With those, I'm reading every single one. I can't respond. So my idea was, if you do leave a review in the Apple Podcast Store or wherever you get your podcast from, just drop your uh, Twitter handle or your Instagram handle in there and I will respond to you. I'll send you a message back because it feels like the least I can do if I'm asking you guys to take a moment out of your day to send me a note, send me a message. The least I can do is take a moment out of mine to respond back to you. So Please keep them coming. I really appreciate them. They're all brilliant and thank you for that. Uh, Also, as ever, thank you to Omolegato Watches, um, partner on this journey of pit lane life lessons. And if you haven't yet checked them out, I strongly suggest you follow them on social media. I'll put all the links in the description. But this week, they've been doing a photo shoot around one of their watches using an incredible car. Uh, It's a rally Ford, uh, Ford Escort Rally Mexico incredible piece of kit, iconic looking car and an iconic timepiece to go with it. So look, check them out. I know I keep telling you to do it, but look, just do it. It's well worth it. And if you do end up buying a watch, which there's a high chance you might when you see them, uh, just use the code uh, F1 Elvis in the code when you check out and then it will just give everybody at Omelogato and of course me notification that it's from this podcast that you went in that direction. So it'd be worthwhile for me. So I really appreciate it. if you could do that, that'd be great. Now, let's get into today's episode. We're talking about flexibility. But what exactly do I mean by that? Because I'm not talking about the ability to touch over and bend over and touch your toes. <laughs> That's a very important skill to have. Has It comes with its own benefits, I can tell you. I'm not even talking about the you know, those flexible components on a Formula One car that we've become so accustomed to, the wings that flex at high speed to reduce drag. I'm talking about flexibility in your approach to life. Flexibility on a daily basis, on a weekly, monthly basis, but also right throughout your life, the ability to adapt, to adapt to a changing world or a changing environment or challenges that come your way. We have hit, been hit with one of the biggest challenges that many of us will have faced in our lives, maybe will ever face over the course of the previous year or so through the global pandemic. We've had to adapt, we've had to be flexible and those that have been flexible will come out the other side in a far more successful situation than those who just either cannot or refuse to be flexible in these situations. If you look up the word flexible in a dictionary, if you Google it, you will get a definition that looks something like this. It will say flexibility, the ability to bend easily without breaking. And 
you can sort of imagine that. If you think about a piece of steel, a piece of metal or a steel ruler, for example, you can bend it. You can bend it almost over so it touches itself, but then it will just spring back. It won't break, it'll spring back to pretty much its original position, its original shape. It's flexible. That's flexibility. And it's a really nice way to look at our lives. The idea of a flexible approach to life is exactly the same. It's this idea that nothing's going to break us. We're, we're able to be flexible to circumnavigate certain challenges or blocks in the road, but we won't break when we're doing it. We'll come out the other side having reverted back to our original form, our original shape. We'll be back on our original path. And that, I guess, in a very sort of small nutshell, is exactly what this podcast is all about. Because we all have goals in our lives, whether they're at the end of every day, whether at the end of a week, or just a lifetime achievement goal. We all have those. We don't need to change those, but we absolutely need to be flexible about how we get there. Because if we have a rigid approach, something that's inflexible, if we have a rigid approach, we will be tripped over by the things that come our way just over the course of our daily lives. We're forever being thrown challenges, with forever being thrown new tasks, new landscapes that emerge in front of us. Things that do crop up, bumps in the road that we can go over that could cause us trouble or we can find a way to go round them. And I hope that's what we'll take from today. You don't need to change your end goal. You just need to be flexible about the way you get there. I want to take you back to my first days in Formula One when I first got my dream job. And I've done this before, but I want to do it from a slightly different perspective today. When I first rocked up at my dream job, which is in Formula One as a mechanic, I went to McLaren. I got a job on the test team at McLaren. Now, back then, we don't have them anymore, but the set, they had a separate test team, which was a separate group of mechanics separate cars, tools, equipment, trucks. We had our own garage set up that all looked exactly the same as the race teams, but was completely separate. And whilst the race team went around the world to Grand Prix, the test team with their own team of people went around the world in a different direction, stopping at various test tracks along the way. We would spend our time in between Grand Prix testing new components lap after lap after lap, huge amount of work being done to prepare, to learn, to test new parts that would then end up on the race cars at a Grand Prix. Now, that was amazing. I wanted to go racing, of course. I wanted to be part of a pit stop crew was my original dream. But getting onto the test team was a huge step in the right direction. I was, I was within touching distance. I was that close. But when I got there, I started to look around this world, this new world that I dreamt of for so long, having spent many years working up the ladder towards Formula One, working in small operations, small race teams that looked nothing like a Formula One team. In those operations, there were just a small handful of people. And so we did everything. We did everything ourselves. We all had to chip in and do a bit of whatever was needed. We loaded the trucks, we fixed the cars, we drove the trucks in some situations. We took the garages down, we built them up again. We literally did pretty much everything that was required because there were so few people there to do it. Now, in Formula One, of course, there are a whole number of people. The one thing Formula One teams in most cases, certainly back then, were not short of was resource. We had more people than we needed. We had every bit of equipment we needed. We had all the resource we could possibly need to do the very best job that we could do. And so when I got to Formula One, I expected this incredible world where we'd have the best of everything. We'd be fine tuning the processes of everything we did. I imagined it must be a world that must be completely flexible and be able to constantly adapt to get the best out of the people and out of the processes that we had. So when I got there, and I started on the test team and I looked over to the race team and I realised that they had this elite group of people who operated as part of this pit stop crew on a regular basis. I started to question in my own mind, what would happen if one of those people went sick or got injured, couldn't make it to a Grand Prix? Those crucial roles in a pit stop that 
played an absolutely critical role in, in the outcome of a Grand Prix. If one of those couldn't make it, presumably the stand-in would have to come from the test team. And I began thinking about that over the first few tests, thinking if that role, if that opportunity comes to me, of course it would be a dream come true, but how on earth could I possibly prepare for being part of a pit stop crew when I've never done a pit stop in my life? And I went to my chief mechanic at the time. I said, but we've got the people, we're going to racetracks, we've got the cars, we've got everything we need. We could actually form a separate pit stop crew that could train and practice in the same way. And therefore we've got a whole group of stand-in people for every position should the, the need arise one day. I was amazed that we weren't doing this already, but the reaction from McLaren or from the people that I went to see at McLaren, my superiors was, look, just go and get on your work. We haven't got time to be worrying about what the race team are doing. We've got too much to do ourselves. And I came away from that interaction thinking, my goodness, this Formula One team, maybe even the industry, it's not anywhere near as flexible as I imagined they must be. They actually seem really stuck in their ways. I was really surprised. Uh, for me, it was a no-brainer that that's what you should be doing. But look, I was this young kid, I was a rookie, I certainly wasn't confident or brave enough to start getting into an argument about it. I just put forward a suggestion, they hadn't taken it, and I'd walked away, got my head down, got back on with my job. But I was surprised. And it, my perception of Formula One, or certainly of McLaren, became one of slightly shocked inflexibility. What I came to realise, of course, is that actually it wasn't McLaren that were inflexible, certainly wasn't the industry of Formula One that was inflexible. It was just one or two people in my organisation. And it so happened that those two people that I'd been to see, the, the uh, chief mechanic and the race team manager at the time, were quite stuck in their ways. They were quite old fashioned. They weren't necessarily flexible in their approach because they were so conscious of just delivering the things that they were tasked with delivering to the people above them. They didn't feel they had any scope in their working day to be flexible and do other things, do more things than was on their own personal job list. And I think a lot of people in this world still operate in that way. That they see being flexible as generating more work or generating something that could actually distract from whatever's on the actual task list in front of them. Whereas the reality is a flexible approach doesn't have to do that at all. A flexible approach is preparing yourself for the moment that that challenge comes along. If you're prepared for a challenge, you can deal with it in a far better, far more efficient way, of course. If you're ill prepared, you're scrabbling around in the moment when the pressure's on and far more likely to make poor decisions and end up with a less optimum result. Now, Formula One, as a, as a role of a Formula One mechanic, our daily routines, and even when I got into the race team, this was the case, our daily routines, our weekend routines, our Grand Prix routines, even the routines over the course of a season were pretty repetitive. And again, this must be something that we can all relate to. Our daily routines in whatever role or whatever job we have are quite often the same. They're repetitive. We go through the same motions. In Formula One, we could be anywhere in the world, but we work in exactly the same garage. It looks exactly the same. We're working on the same cars, the same group of people around us. We have exactly the same schedule in most cases. We turn up on a Tuesday or a Wednesday, we go through the motions of unpacking the cars, we get them fired up, we get them scrutineered, we set them up, we do some pit stop practice, we go through Friday's testing or practice routines, full rebuild on Friday night, same thing on Saturday, qualifying, and then on Sunday we get to the race. It's exactly the same over and over and over again. It's almost a little bit like Groundhog Day, and that is in no way a kind of moan or a complaint because I loved every single second of my time there. But the processes are very repetitive. The point was our end goal of that weekend was always exactly the same. Our targets were always exactly the same. On a Thursday, our target was always to get the car fired up 
as soon as we could so that we could then get the car down to the FIA weighing scales to get it weighed and measured. We always had exactly that same challenge in mind. Of course, when it got to Grand Prix Sunday, our same target existed. We wanted to get from the lights going out to the chequered flag as quickly as possible. Every team has that same target on a Sunday. It's exactly the same. And yet the way that every team goes about it has to be completely flexible. We're not gonna be flexible about what we want to achieve, but we've got to be flexible about the way we get there. And if you think about what you hear on the team radio as the race unfolds, of course we know that. We hear the drivers being told by the engineer when something happens, right, we're gonna to switch to plan B or plan C or plan D. And that's because over the course of Friday, Saturday, and then Sunday morning, there's a whole group of us who are analyzing data from the, the sessions that the car's been on track, looking at every possible eventuality that we can see playing out and trying to find flexible approaches or different ways that we can deal with whatever scenario we can imagine gets thrown our way. And so if a safety car crops up, we know what we're gonna do. If the tires start to degrade faster than we predicted initially, we know what to do. If we get a bad start, we know what to do. Punctures, all of these things are accounted for in a well-prepared, laid out, well-communicated strategy. So that we have a whole number of approaches to our race still to achieve the same end goal but looking at a completely flexible way in which we might get there depending on what's thrown out in front of us. That's flexibility. Even during the Grand Prix, the software that looks after our strategy systems is running system checks, is analysing, is simulating the current situation every six seconds during a race so that every six seconds we know that if a safety car happens now, this is what we'll do. If we get a situation where we jump up a place, we overtake somebody, that puts us in a new race position, we know what to do. A virtual safety car, we know what to do. If it rains, we know what to do. So that the decision-making process is taken out of that high pressure, stressful situation. The preparation has gone into it beforehand. We have taken a flexible approach to how we achieve our target. And I think this is something that almost everybody in 2020 has had to learn to do. This is what people have had to adapt to because of the changing landscape that the global pandemic has thrust in front of us all. We have very little choice but to adapt, to be flexible. And those people that have been most flexible or have an open-minded approach to flexibility will be the ones that have come out the other side in a far better situation. Imagine if you are a traveling salesman, if, you're, if your job is driving around the country, turning up to people's workplaces, their factories, their offices, trying to sell those people a box of widgets. That's your role, that's what you've done for 15 years, is drive around meeting people face to face to sell them a box of the widgets that your company make. And because you're so good at that, because you're so good at those face to face meetings, you've got a great charismatic personality, you've got a great product, you know how to sell it to people when you're sat in front of them, you've been very good at your job, you sell loads of widgets. And then 2020 comes along, a global pandemic, which means you can no longer turn up at somebody's office because they're not gonna be there. Nobody's in offices anymore. You can't drive around the country doing your thing anymore. So what are you gonna do? Are you gonna sit at home with your box of widgets sat next to you on the sofa and just wait for the phone to ring? Are you gonna wait for the whole pandemic to be over so that you can get back on the road and start turning up at people's factories again? You can't do that, can you? What you have to do is be flexible. You've still got that same goal of selling your widgets to the people that you know need them, but now you're gonna to have to find a new way to do it. You're gonna to have to go online, you're gonna to have to do it virtually. So maybe you've been flexible enough to prepare an incredible online presentation that shows your widgets in this incredible light, that shows you, shows off that charismatic personality, adds a bit of humour into your presentation, gets your personality across the things that helped you sell face to face. Perhaps you can be flexible enough to adapt that 
to a new online world where you can still sell your widgets to people, yet you're no longer sitting in front of them. If you can't be that flexible, you will fail. Maybe you've never had to really use a computer before. Maybe you've never had to use PowerPoint. Maybe these software programs that are, now, that are on your computer were never part of your world. And maybe you've had to be flexible enough and open enough to the idea of learning how to use those things from scratch. That could be a tough challenge, but if you're not gonna be that flexible, you're not gonna succeed as the landscape in front of you changes massively. We have to have this flexible approach to life and to work and to the way that we operate. Because one thing you can guarantee is that things, hurdles, challenges will come your way. If you're going to be inflexible, you're gonna find that very difficult. If you're driving to work, there could well be an accident. There could well be roadworks that pop up on your normal route. Now, if you're so inflexible that you know this is the shortest route by distance and you are just gonna stick to it, it's the route you always take, and yet today something's cropped up, but you are not veering off that route because you know that's the shortest and quickest way to get there. You're gonna be late for work that day, aren't you? Unless you can be flexible enough to have perhaps thought of some other routes, perhaps prepared some alternate routes in beforehand, in, in time, ahead of time rather. Flexible enough to think on the fly when something like that crops up, to start looking through the sat-nav to find a new route to work. And that might seem so trivial, so simple, but some people are not flexible enough to be able to embrace those changes. Now those things that I'm talking about are the relatively small things, the things that happen to us on a regular basis that we just have to be flexible with if we want to get the best out of ourselves in any given moment. But sometimes there are far bigger challenges that come our way. Things that mean we have to be flexible on a far greater level, on an almost existential level sometimes. Take decisions that have the potential to destroy us because if we don't take those decisions, they will destroy us. That's real flexibility. That is the kind of thing that can enable your company to survive, enable your relationships to survive, enable you to achieve your dreams in the end, even if you get a massive challenge thrown your way. And there are some wonderful examples of this. When I go around the world doing my public speaking to organisations talking about this kind of thing, there are one or two examples from the real world that I use all the time. They're very well-known ones, you may well know them already. In fact, you'll almost certainly know at least one of them. The one that is most common that I use all the time is the idea of blockbuster video. Those who are not old enough to remember blockbuster video, uh, this was a, a brand, an organisation that had premises in almost every high street of every town, not just in the UK, but around the world. A company that almost every family had a membership card to, where on a Friday, we'd go down to Blockbuster Video, we would rent out a video cassette of our favorite movie or the latest movie or the latest show. We'd go home and over the weekend, we would all gather around as a family and we'd watch that video. And then on a Sunday night, You'd take it back to the Blockbuster video shop, you'd pop it through a little letterbox in their door and it was returned. And that rental, of course, was where they made their money. But they also made quite a lot of money because people forgot to take those videos back on a Sunday night and quite often it would be Monday or Tuesday by the time we eventually got round to taking it back to the shop. And in those situations, we got charged a late fee. Blockbuster made a huge amount of money out of that. It was an incredibly successful organisation. They were a blue and yellow shop, and as I said, almost every high street had one. And then one day, after years of enjoying this incredible success, almost unparalleled success at the time, streaming over the internet began to appear over the horizon. This idea that people could enjoy their content or their entertainment over the internet in a different form. They didn't necessarily need to have this physical cassette that Blockbuster was dealing in. And somebody at Blockbuster went to their board, went to their management 
and said, look, guys, we need to be aware that this streaming idea, this digital streaming over the Internet is heading our way. Technology is really ramping up now. We should really think about embracing that kind of technology for our future. And the management at Blockbuster said, no, 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 absolutely not. That's a ridiculous idea. First of all, we are not set up for that. We've got high street stores everywhere. We've got assets in terms of our video cassettes and all the things, the popcorn that we sell, the sweets that we sell. We've got premises. We're a face-to-face -face company. We want people coming in off the high street into our store. That's why we're so successful. And on top of that, we make so much money from late fees when people fail to return these cassettes on time. Why on earth would we want to give that up when people can just stream it from their own homes? If they're streaming it, they don't have to return it. They're not going to be late. That's a huge chunk of our revenue would just disappear. And so they said, streaming's not for us. Can't see it take it off. Well, Netflix did embrace that model, as we know, and they now dominate the marketplace massively. Blockbuster have disappeared. Now, that's a really clear example of an organisation being totally inflexible at that massive existential level. It was a tough decision to make, not an easy one, but that's the, that's the nature of these kind of decisions. Making a decision that's that tough, it's tough because that decision has the potential to destroy your organisation. But not making that decision absolutely destroyed the organisation. And there are other examples. Another good one is Kodak. The camera people, Kodak, back in the late 70s, an engineer at Kodak invented digital camera technology. Took it to his board, to his management and said, look guys, I've created digital camera technology. We can put the, the, the camera into the hands of photographer, photography, into the hands of people at home. We can get so many more people engaged in photography because they can take control of the whole process just from their digital camera. And the management at Kodak said, no, what are you talking about? That's ridiculous. We're Kodak. We are famous for making film cameras, for developing photos, for dealing in photographic paper, photographic equipment, the chemicals, the solutions that develop those photos. That's our business model. That's why people come to us. And you know what? Kodak buried that technology. They hid it. They locked it away in a safe at Kodak, hoping that it would just disappear or it wouldn't resurface for a long time. Well, it did resurface. It actually took about 10 years. 10 years later, other people began developing digital camera technology. And of course, the rest is history. That took off massively and Kodak almost completely disappeared. Just because that tough decision of being flexible enough to completely change the direction that you're heading because you know it's the right thing to do. Not because it's easy, because it's the right thing to do. Those tough decisions are what can make or break an organisation. And there are some brilliant Formula One examples of this as well. Jaguar came into Formula One owned by Ford, the Ford Motor Company. The Ford Motor Company ran that team, but they didn't do it in a Formula One way. They did it in an automotive giant conglomerate way based out of Detroit in the USA. They did it, operated it by board members. So decisions were slow to be made, made by committee at the board out in Detroit. Every process, every decision had to be run by this enormous group of people back out in the States. They even hired some great people from within the world of Formula One who then told them you can't operate a Formula One team like you can operate one of the world's biggest car companies. Formula One teams have to be quick, they have to be nimble, they have to be dynamic, they have to be flexible. And Ford Motor Company said, who on earth are you to tell us how we should be running our team? We're the Ford Motor Company. Jaguar didn't last very long. Because you can't operate a Formula One team like that. Because the whole point of Formula One is that you have to be able to 
make decisions on the fly, to adapt quickly. You have to be flexible in the ways that I've described already on a daily basis, to change the way you're doing things quickly, but also at that huge existential level. And Ford couldn't do that. They couldn't see that they were going in the wrong direction, in an opposite direction to whether everybody else in Formula One had gone. A proven model, even when they were being told that that was the right thing to do. Because they couldn't see that and they refused to be flexible enough, they disappeared. At my own team, at McLaren, we had a, a similar kind of example where, I've talked about this before, where Ron Dennis gave Adrian Newey a blank sheet of paper and said, right, we need to go away and do something completely different. We need to design a car that breaks the mould of designing a Formula One car because we were falling behind in this battle with Ferrari. That car was the MP418. Adrian Newey went away and literally threw away the rule book on how to design cars. He came up with new concepts all over it. Groundbreaking concepts. But at the time, they were concepts that we couldn't quite get working properly. We couldn't quite understand them or we didn't have the right material science knowledge. We didn't have the full understanding of how to get the best out of these technologies. And in the end, the project just couldn't work. We couldn't get it to pass crash tests. We couldn't get the car to operate smoothly on the racetrack. It wasn't even quick. It wasn't reliable. But some of the projects that were involved or some of the design concepts involved in that project were absolute genius. But because we were costing ourselves so much time, so much energy, so much resource in continuing to pursue down this path of the MP418, Ron Dennis came along and had to make a tough decision. A decision to pull the plug on that project for that season which was 2003, and design another car that was more conventional to be able to get to the end of that year, to be able to stay in that championship fight. And in the end, that's what happened. Much to Adrian Newey's dismay, he had to abandon the project. It was a tough call by Ron Dennis, but it was the right call at the time. Not because some of those things on the MP418 weren't brilliant, History tells us that many of those concepts went on to be massively successful at the hands of Adrian Newey, no doubt, in the uh, later years as, his, uh, as he joined Red Bull. Exhaust blown diffuser. That was on the MP418 years earlier, but we couldn't stop the thing catching fire. We had an exhaust that exited through the floor and it couldn't, it was so, in such tight proximity, we couldn't stop the floor burning and catching fire every time it ran. Years later, the exhaust blown diffuser was the must have device on your car. Everybody had one and it developed or gained so much performance as a result that it was an absolute, it was an absolute deal breaker to not have one. That was a concept that was initially developed for that MP418. And there were other things around that car as well that later on went to come to, came to fruition and ended up being successful. But Ron Dennis had to take that really big, difficult decision, knowing that at the time it was the right thing to do to pull the plug. Huge amount of money down the pan, huge amount of time down the pan, resource, upsetting some of our key personnel in the process. But he was flexible enough to be able to completely change direction because he knew at that time it was the right thing to do. And the fact that many of these concepts took years before they eventually did succeed was justification in Ron's decision. We couldn't afford to go years and years and years before we actually got these things working. We'd have disappeared all the way down the grid. So that was a tough call to make, but we were flexible enough to do it. Taking Red Bull as another example, their driver program has often come in for a huge amount of criticism because they often get churned through like a conveyor belt. They often don't get given a huge amount of time to perform. And that's often a really unpopular decision when it's made. But the reality is that we live in a results-based industry in Formula One where if you're a team at the top, you have to stay at the top. 
You have to do whatever it takes to continue scoring points, to continue winning races and challenging for world titles because that's the very mechanism that enables your organisation to sustain itself in this world. Points mean prizes. And sometimes changing a driver who's not performing, even if you've only given him half a season or a season, which might seem tough, Sometimes that's the right decision, even though it's a tough decision to make, even though it could be a really unpopular decision. It's tough because, well, there are humans involved. There is a fan base who may well love that driver. There are sponsors that could be attached to that driver. There are so many reasons why that can be a really hard call to make. But sometimes it might just feel like it's the right thing to do. Make a change before the path goes too wrong. Make a change before one of your rivals manages to get a run on you and overtake. Try something new. Now, I don't agree with every decision that Red Bull has made in its driver programme. Nobody will agree with all of them. But I do respect the fact that they have had to make some tough calls because they believe it's the right thing to do. If you think about Formula One itself, Formula One being built into this incredible global sport by Bernie Eccleston, all the way back since he started that project, took it on and, and tried to grow it, you can't say anything about Bernie other than he was hugely successful in that mission. He didn't do it single-handedly, but it was his vision that was behind it all. And he's grown it into something that when it first started, nobody could have comprehended. You've got to say that was a huge success. But in today's world, where the world is changing so rapidly, maybe Bernie Eccleston, well into his 80s, is not the man to take this forward. And when Liberty Media came along and bought the commercial rights to Formula One, they also had some tough calls to make. I think they, as well as everyone else, appreciated what Bernie Eccleston had done to get it to the level that it's at. But Liberty Media's goal was a goal that wanted to grow the sport even further. They wanted to grow their revenues to get a return on their investment even further. How do you do that when you've already got hundreds of millions of people watching the sport globally, all around the world? You've got to find ways to get it even bigger than that. Well, the way you do that is you look at that changing landscape in front of you. You look at the, the environment that's completely different to when Bernie Eccleston launched the products that he's got, that he, he created with Formula One and the business model that surrounded that. You look at the potential people you're trying to attract in that growth area of, of the audience. Of course, we're looking to attract younger people because the people that came into Formula One as fans under the Bernie Eccleston era, yes, they loved what he brought to them. Most of that came about through free-to-air television, when there were nowhere near as many options on television. And we had a great product, so it had some great racing, some great drivers, some great characters, and that audience is now growing older and older and older. And the simple truth is, eventually, that audience will die. The younger audience that we now need to try and attract to keep our sport sustainable for the future and to grow it, well, they have a different perspective on life. They see life through a different lens. They live in a completely different world to the one that Bernie Eccleston originally grew this sport in. They demand different things from their content, from their entertainment. Have they got two hours on a Sunday afternoon to sit down and watch a Grand Prix? Many of them haven't. Now, when Liberty first came in, they had to make some big decisions, and they did. And I have massive respect for the vision that they set out for the future of the sport. They embraced this idea of social media, something that every young fan can relate to. They got the teams and the drivers to buy into that concept and start creating content for their own social channels, something that in the Bernie Eccleston era was absolutely banned. In Bernie's day, it was totally against the rules to film anything, even on a phone or even from within your own garage, without having full media rights access. 
Even the teams couldn't create any video content inside that Formula One paddock. It was an exclusive zone and that's how Bernie ran it. Well, today, Liberty are now encouraging the teams, encouraging the drivers to create their own content for social platforms, for digital platforms. They're creating highlights reels of every race in different length packages to suit different people's needs. We've now got a Netflix documentary that's enticed a huge number of people in short form content to be attracted in a dramatised version of our sport. And once they're attracted, well, maybe they'll go and watch a Grand Prix. That's how we start to grow an audience. And maybe looking into the future even further, Liberty have some even bigger tough decisions to make. Some existential type decisions that they may have to be hugely flexible upon. And as fans of the sport, we might have to be flexible around that too. Because if we are going to move this sport into a future world that looks very different to the one 20 years ago even, when the current model began to take shape, we need to adapt the product to suit that world, to suit the clientele that we're going to try and sell that product to. Younger audiences may well not have two hours on a Sunday afternoon to sit and watch their TVs every single weekend for 20 odd races per year. So do we have to think about making a shorter form of Formula One on some occasions? Do we have to think about an alternative way of packaging that sport up for viewers? Do people, a younger audience, want to pay a massive subscription to a television channel, a television network to watch their content or do they just want to watch it wherever they are in the world? They don't have to want to, they don't want to, have to go home, can they just want to watch it when they're out and about on social media streams, on YouTube, the way they watch all of their other content? These are flexible decisions that the sport has to make, that the commercial, as a commercial rights holder, Liberty has to make and as fans, we have to be flexible about those decisions being made because it might well protect the future of the sport. And the truth is, not everybody's going to like them. It's going to be one of those decisions that splits opinions when they come. Because the old guard, the people who did grow up under Bernie Eccleston's era, well, they don't want to change. But if we want to protect the future of our sport, we have to be flexible. We don't want Formula One to end up like a blockbuster when another form of racing comes along, whether that's Formula E or anything else in the future that might be exciting, that might have the best drivers, that might be packaged in a way that younger people will embrace, that might be free to watch from a consumer's point of view. These are all things that seem so simple but are actually so difficult to do but they're also the decisions that have to be made if we believe they're the right ones to protect the future of our sport when i started this podcast i said your goals in life or in business or even in formula one your goals they they can be as immovable as you like you can be as fixated and focused on those goals as you want that's a brilliant trait to have Formula One wants to grow its audience. It wants to reach as many people and entertain those people as possible. But the way we achieve those goals simply has to be flexible. And we can all apply that to our daily lives. It's now about a week since I recorded the episode that you just listened to. It's now Tuesday night, the night before this podcast goes live, and I'm sat in a hotel room in Bicester in the UK where I've just listened to it all back, as I do every time to be able to reflect on what I said when it was recorded. And I've just been sat here with a big smile on my face because I've realised that over the past week, I've actually, without noticing it at the time, taken my own advice on all of this. I'm currently working, as many of you know, on a, a big television production for one of the biggest global TV networks and it's a high quality production in many ways and yet over the past six months, over the past year, we've been put under ever increasing restrictions as has everybody across the world because of the changing landscape that 2020 has really thrust upon us with the global pandemic. 
we're facing tighter budgetary restrictions. We are unable to travel in the same way that we used to be to make the show. We're able to put less man hours on the production and we're having to just simply do things differently because we can't interact in the same way that we used to. And yet everybody in this newly formed team that it is on the production has exactly the same goal of desperately wanting to make the same high quality production that was being made prior to these restrictions coming into place. Now that can be incredibly frustrating. And of course, like everything, there are two ways to look at it. We could have fought back. We could have kicked off and gone back to the channel and said, look, if you want the same high quality production, you've got to give us the same amount of money. You've got to allow us to do things the way we always used to do them. Or we could be flexible. And that, particularly this week, is exactly what we have been doing. We put our collective heads together. We sat down, we discussed every single thing that we do. We worked backwards from our end goal, producing this high quality, really successful, well-loved content that people have watched for years. We worked back from that end goal and then figured out ways to achieve it within the new landscape, rather than just looking at it saying, well, this is how we make a show like that. We threw away the rule book and started with a clean sheet of paper and it was an utterly liberating experience. And I'm really proud to say that what we've come up with is a great set of innovative ways of thinking about our challenge, but still with the same goal in mind at the end. And we've found some new ways of doing things that I think actually might end up being more successful in the long run than we were doing them before. We are now filming a little bit less because that's simply what we have to do, but we're being more efficient about how we do it. We're filming less content, but we're filming better content. We're not wasting content, giving too many options that would have never been used before. We're drilling down and focusing on what options we actually need to capture and only making sure we get those in the best quality that we can. Now it might seem obvious, but that kind of flexible approach is something that I see all over the world as not happening enough. It's the very reason that I set about making this podcast episode on this particular subject. Because one of the things I see more often than not are companies as well as individuals, people who think they are flexible, who think they're adaptable. And yet when you really drill down into it, they're not. Companies who pride themselves on having this flexible approach on pride themselves on having dealt with the changes that 2020 has thrown at them in a really great way. And many people of course have, but when I really drill into it, I start working with these organizations as I still do on a regular basis, you actually find that yes, they may well have adapted in some areas, but if you haven't adapted in other areas, you're still not getting the best out of your organization. A company that lays down a strict set of rules and regulations and asks their entire workforce simply to fit into those is not necessarily being flexible enough. When you start to appreciate that all of those people within that organisation are a range of individuals that have different needs, that have different skill sets, strengths and weaknesses, different ways of getting the best out of them. When you understand that, you understand the need to have a much more flexible approach to working with those people. And exactly the same thing applies to individuals when it comes to their daily work routines in their offices or their workplaces. Can they be adaptive to new rules that might have been placed on them by the company because of the changing world around them? Maybe changes that to some extent, like us on our production, have been inevitable. Are you able to adapt and still operate within this new changing framework that you're faced with? Or are you going to just dig your heels in and say, I can't do it, I can't do a job like that? There are two options in these scenarios, but only one of those options will lead to a more successful outcome. And the same thing applies to people outside of the workplace, in the family setting or relationship settings, friend groups. People think they're way more flexible than they actually are. Relationships that 
fall apart because two people are incompatible, seemingly. Two people who have different dreams, different goals, different needs. Quite often that doesn't work, whereas quite often it could work if one or both of those parties were just a bit more flexible in their approach to each other. If you're unwilling to adapt the way you live your life and yet you want to share that life with somebody else, living in the same house, sharing your daily routines, your family, your children, your surroundings, your friend groups. If you want to share your life, you can't just dig your own heels in and say, right, if you want to come and live with me and be part of my life, you have to live the way I want to live. That's not how a partnership works. You have to be flexible on that. You have to think about the needs of the other person and maybe adapt in some circumstances the way you live your own life to accommodate them. I mean, I'm sure there are all sorts of things that annoy you about the people you live with, about the friends that you're closest to, maybe the people that share your desk at work. Of course there are. People that don't do the washing up when they finish their dinner. For me, it's not tucking in the bit of excess bin liner that pokes outside the kitchen bin. Definitely something that came from my Ron Dennis McLaren days. <laughs> but for me, it annoys me when that happens. But for the people I live with, it's just not even a thing. They can't understand why I get so stressed about it. And so we all have to be a little bit flexible, a little bit understanding. I have to be understanding if they've forgotten to do it, because for them I know it doesn't register very highly on their priority list. And for them, they've had to start to get a little bit more understanding of the fact that it does annoy me and therefore try and think a little bit more about doing it. Now that might seem like a trivial example, but it's an example of something that can be scaled up to all sorts of things in a relationship. And quite often is one of the main reasons relationships fail, because one, or more normally, both parties haven't been flexible enough to deal with not only a changing world, but people who are changing and learning as they grow older. Relationships from our parents, our grandparents and our great-grandparents were far more flexible in life than we are today. And there is a balance, of course, to be had because a lot of people will say, well, I don't want to be that flexible. I want to live my life the way I want to live it. And that also is a perfectly fine approach. As long as you're not expecting the people around you to just be flexible if you're not going to. And this comes back to when I was talking about these big decisions about changing direction, like a 180 degree change whether it's as an individual in your life and your goals and your work, throwing a career away because you 100% believe you want to go off in a different direction and start a new career. There's nothing wrong with that as long as you believe in it, as long as you believe it's the right thing to do. And if you're part of an organisation where the leader of that organisation has come up with that conclusion, they want to change direction. If you're a, a Kodak or a Blockbuster, and at the top of that tree, you've seen the threats coming on the horizon or the opportunity and want to turn around and go off in the other, other direction to embrace that. The only way you get people buying into that is by teaching them or letting them understand why you believe it's such a good idea. They have to buy into it by fully understanding the reasoning behind this flexible approach to your existence that you're trying to ask them to come along on that journey with comes down to communication and in that very communication you have to be flexible not everybody is going to see it the same way as you straight off the bat you might have to work with people to get them to understand why this looks like the right decision it all comes down to flexibility and all of that flexibility comes down to an individual approach I talk about this so often teaching or treating people rather as individuals before I go, I want to give you one more story from my Formula One times that I think is a brilliant one that I wanted to shoehorn into this episode. I know we're running out of time, but a great example of flexibility. And this was when I was part of the pit stop crew at McLaren during the refuelling era. When I was part of that pit stop crew at McLaren, we had a set of regulations around refuelling in pit stops that 
were very strict about the refueling rigs. They were a set piece of kit that every team had to use in exactly the same way. We weren't allowed to modify that refueling equipment. It was standard issue and very strictly we had to use it in its standard configuration. We couldn't modify the kit in any way. It delivered fuel at 12 litres per second and that was the same for everybody. But one of the restrictions around that, one of the things that was always the limiting factor in pit stops was when the fuel had gone in, the required amount of fuel had gone in, the ECU shut off this motorised valve inside the fuel nozzle to stop the fuel flowing. And when that valve was fully closed, it lit up some green lights on the nozzle, which then meant we could release the safety handles and then pull the nozzle off. It was a two-step process. You release the safety handles and then you pull the nozzle off. Well, that was always a slow, clunky process. And by being flexible about the way we looked at that challenge that was in front of us, realising that the goal here was the same for every team. We wanted to get through that pit stop and get the car back in the race as quickly as possible. We needed to get the fuel into the car and the nozzle off the car as quickly as possible. Well, delivering the fuel was set. We couldn't change that. The bit we perhaps could think about doing some a different way was removing the nozzle. Now, we had to wait for these lights to change to green because otherwise there'd still be fuel flowing when we detached the nozzle. But what we realised was, in order for that to happen, a small motorised butterfly valve inside the nozzle of the fuel rig whirred up, spun up and then closed and then the lights would change and then we started the process of releasing the nozzle. We realised that that whirring motor inside the nozzle made a slight sound. You could hear it happening before the lights changed. And so our refuelling team, of which I was part, operated using a doctor's stethoscope, where we put the earpiece in our ear, the stethoscope ran down the sleeve of the main refueler. The bit the doctor presses onto your chest when he's listening to your heartbeat popped out the end of his sleeve and ahead of every pit stop, he'd place that onto the nozzle. We didn't modify the nozzle in any way. We used it in standard specification, but during every pit stop, we were listening through a doctor's stethoscope for that whirring of the motor of the butterfly valve. As the fuel reached its capacity, it began whirring into action to close that valve before the lights then changed. Now that we knew the motorised valve was closing, we could then start the process of releasing the safety catches from the nozzle. And by the time the lights went green, we were just ready to detach the nozzle straight away. There was no more two-step process after the lights had changed. Tiny details, absolutely genius. It probably only saved us half a second, but half a second in Formula One terms can be the difference between coming out of that pit lane first or second. And that can be the difference between winning races or even winning world championships. So whilst our goal of getting out of that pit stop as quickly as possible was exactly the same as it had always been, we took a flexible approach to find a way around the challenge that was presented in front of us by this strict set of regulations. And what was brilliant about this was it was totally legal. It didn't breach any regulations and it was also absolutely secretive. Nobody knew about it until years later. One of my favourites, that one. I absolutely love it. Uh, right, now before we go, I just want to read you out one comment that I received this week. And I will try and do this every week because it means such a lot to me and I want you guys to know that I so appreciate the, the messages that you send me. This one comes from somebody called Yorderman One. Uh, he says, hi Mark, I sent a link of this, uh, this um, podcast. This was the Dealing With Pressure podcast from last week. I sent a link to this podcast to my daughter at university who at times can get a bit stressed over her workloads. I know what she's like, as I used to be, exactly the same. But stress management techniques I learnt really helped me. I've tried to impart this to her, but not sure how much has sunk in because who wants to listen to their boring old dad? But hopefully she'll pay attention to someone else saying the same thing as me. So thank you so much for releasing this episode. What an amazing little comment to receive. And I do hope that it helps your daughter. Thank you for the message. I hope it's helped lots of people. In fact, I know it has because you've told me. And it honestly means the world to me that you do tell me this stuff. So please, please keep that coming. As I said in the beginning, if you could take a moment to rate and review the podcast, it would mean the world to me. I would hugely appreciate it. So please, please do that, especially if you're listening on Apple Podcasts. 
drop your Twitter or your Instagram handle in that review and I will go through them all. I'll read them all and I'll send you a message of thank you in response to that as well. So thanks ever so much for listening. Thank you to Omologato Watches. As I said, go check them out on social media. They are absolutely passionate about cars and racing. So if nothing else, even if you don't want to buy a watch, they are a brilliant Twitter and Instagram account to follow because the imagery that comes along with these amazing motorsport inspired watches will inspire you, I absolutely promise. So thank you, Omologato, for being partnered with us to be part of this journey. Thank you to you guys for listening. I'll be back in a week's time with another one. Until then, have a great week. I'll see you soon.